Welcome to the My Why Podcast, where educational storytellers Jesse Mann and Kristen Travers discuss identity-defining moments with special guests. Inspiration ensues. We're going to start today with a little celebration, and we are so new to this podcast business, but we wanted to share a few things before we get down to business today. We have awesome supporters downloading weekly in over 15 countries and have shared educational, empowering stories through the podcast nearly 20,000 times in our first 11 episodes. We aren't your regular podcasters. With Kristen surviving a stroke in 2015 and losing her ability to speak for weeks, and myself being someone who always has kind of struggled to find the right words at the right time, we are two women who have a passion to connect with others and share stories of resilience, grit, and grace. Regardless that sometimes we are very far from perfect when it comes to professionally speaking. We're learning lots and growing ourselves both professionally and personally, each cast that we finalize and stream out to you and to the world. So thank you so much for listening and learning with us. If you have a suggestion about someone you recommend we reach out to, are interested in supporting a story, or ever have questions, just let us know. Reach out. Times are crazy right now, and we are all about those connections during COVID. Let's get down to this week's story, and we welcome a little manpower today. But first, we want to start by saying thank you to the Lloydminster Region Health Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Health Foundation wants to send a big shout out to you, the listeners, for the support that you have shown the foundation that allows them to continue to provide frontline workers and patients with the needed resources. If you're looking for ways to help out more, please consider donating to the COVID-19 Emergency Fund. They will continue to support all the frontline workers during this crisis. Links and more information on the supplies that they require are available in the show notes of this cast. We are so pleased to have our next guest, Michael. He has a bachelor's in social work and is a master encourager, a dynamic motivational speaker. As a teenager, Michael was fortunate to receive guidance from positive adult role models who helped him overcome adversities and set high expectations for his future. Grateful for his role these mentors played in his own development, Michael decided to dedicate his professional life to helping people navigate the difficulties of life and launch their own future in motion. For more than 25 years, he has been helping teens and adults to use what they have, been, what they have gone through as a catalyst for success rather than an obstacle for their future. Michael received the 2010 USA Networks Characters Unite Award for exceptional commitment to combating prejudice and discrimination while increasing tolerance and acceptance within the community. He is also the recipient of the 2014 100 Men of Color Award for Leadership. Additional information on his struggles as a child and debilitating spinal cord injury as an adult can be found on his wife's books, God Holding My Hand. Uh, wow, Michael, thank you for being here. Michael is coming from Connecticut via Zoom audio today. Michael, if you're okay with this, we'll just dive right in. You give credits to the adults that's guided you through adversity. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and the obstacles that you've overcome and how it's shaped you? Yes, yes, I'll do that. But um, for me to start, I wanna tell you guys a story that kind of sets up my childhood and my adulthood all captured in one. Um, it's about a, a, a farmer and a donkey, all right? And this donkey is one of the farmer's favorite animals because once he finishes working on the field, he brings the donkey back home and he allows the donkey to play with his kids. And so the kids come running out the house and they come out and they pet him and they wash him they ride them and then after they finish playing with them, the farmer releases them back out to the farm. And then they go in and they eat dinner and this becomes more like a ritual. So one night he brings the donkey home, they do their, their thing with the donkey, he releases them back out to the farm. But when he comes out the next morning and he whistles for his donkey, his donkey doesn't come. So when he doesn't come, he's you know nervous about it. So he starts to search around his farm and he's looking for him, can't find him. And all of a sudden he hears him screaming from the bottom of an empty water well. See, during the night he stumbled and he fell into the well and obviously he couldn't get, get out. So he was making the donkey noises. So the farmer walks over, he looks down into the well. Of course he wants to get him out. 
So he goes and gets six of his friends. Six of his friends come over to the well. They look in the well. They're like, how are we going to get him out? One of them decides that they're going to get some rope and they're going to pull him out. So all six of them go get some rope. They start to lasso the don donkey. They throw the rope. They miss. They throw the rope. They miss. They throw the rope. They miss. They finally throw it by his hind legs. He steps into the rope. They shimmy it up his body and they start to pull. They pull the donkey moves. They pull the donkey moves. They pull the donkey moves. Then halfway up the well, they realize that the donkey's too heavy. So now they lower him back to the bottom of the well and now the farmer has to make a grim decision. Now see, he can't feed him food at the bottom of the well from his family because that doesn't make any sense. He really doesn't feel like he can starve him because like I said in the beginning, he's more like a, a pet. One of his hot-headed friends were like, hey, just shoot him. He's like, nah, I can't shoot him. That's too violent. So one of his more reasonable friends said, listen, you don't want your kids to fall into the well. So what we're going to do, we're going to have to sacrifice your donkey, but we're going to cover him with dirt. Your kids will be safe. You won't have your donkey, but, you know, everything will be okay. So they decide that that's all right, and they all get shovels, and they start shoveling dirt into the well. And every time that dirt would hit the donkey, the donkey would scream. And every time the donkey would scream, it would cause the farmer some distress. So you got dirt, scream, dirt, scream, dirt, scream. Then the next thing you know, the scream stopped. Now, when the scream stopped, they gave the donkey a moment of silence, but they continued to go back to work. Dirt, dirt, dirt. Lo and behold, you see the donkey's right ear. They start shoveling faster. The next thing you know, you see half the donkey's body. They keep shoveling faster. And finally, that donkey walked right out of the well that he fell into. Now, check this out. Every time that dirt came across the wall, it would fall on the donkey's back. He would shake it off, and he would step on it. And he took every scoop of dirt that was meant to kill him to save his life. So when I talk about what I went through in my life, I'm that donkey, and I've had dirt. I think, you know, listening to you guys' story, you have your own dirt as well. But my dirt was the fact that I grew up an uh, alcoholic. My dad was a raging alcoholic. Um, and I have to say raging because the emphasis has to be on the raging because he died when I was 16. But this man raged from the time I was born until the time that he died. And so, you know, growing up in a household like that, you never really had a day where you really get to enjoy it because you would get caught up in like the happiness of the day. And then all of a sudden, something would just poke you and tap you on your shoulder and say, hey, listen, buddy, don't get too happy because you got to go home tonight. On top of living in a home with an alcoholic father, you know, I lived in poverty. So my, both my parents worked full time. They didn't have great jobs. He was a bus driver. My, my mom cleaned homes for a living. She was a maid. And my dad's money went to the streets. So my mom raised four kids with a, um, a salary of, of cleaning homes, which is not much money. And so, you know, we, we made do, you know, um, I was a good kid. I never asked for things that she couldn't get me because I knew that would make her, you know, that would hurt her feelings. So, you know, we may do what we have, but on top of the, the poverty, there was dysfunction. So you got to imagine you got an alcoholic dad, you don't have money, and then in my neighborhood, you know, you had drugs, you had people going off to jail, um, you know, you had gangs. And so you had all this negative energy. And so what I was able to do is I was able to come up in that environment, you know, with that dirt, shake it off, step on it. And that became the catalyst. And it's the foundation of why I want to reach out and help other people, because I feel this need and this necessity that all those things that I went through um, was not just for me, it's, it's for other people as well. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that, Michael. I have a little experience um, with a, a family member as well that um, suffered with alcoholism. And I guess something that, that really does fascinate me is why do some people, and why can some people shake it off and some people follow in that path? So what was it for you, do you think, that made you realize, I, I don't want to drink alcohol, I don't want to try drugs, and I'm going to, you know, try and live a clean lifestyle, and I'm going to shake the dirt off? 
Well, well, I mean, I don't want to, I'm not an angel. I like to drink a beer at a barbecue and all that, but I'm not an alcoholic, you know, mm-hmm. but what, what made me decide not to go that path. And it's funny that you ask, cause I have a brother, two brothers and a sister. My oldest brother is, is, is he's huge. He's a big man. I'm a big man, but he makes me look small. But what he took from the experience is he is a, a pushover. You can walk over him. He doesn't fight back. So living in that home made him that way. My next brother became my dad. So he became the alcoholic and he repeated what went on in the home. And my sister's just, you know, she's kind of nutty. But of course, living in the house that we lived in, it's just a byproduct of that. You know, what, what kept me from doing it is, you know, if I showed you my home that I grew up in, I, and I show it in my talks, I show a picture, and if you see it from the outside, it looks condemned. So you're like, wow, I can't believe anybody even lives in there. But I tell you this because some nights we wouldn't have heat. And I tell this story because I remember it like it was yesterday. As I was falling asleep one night, I was about eight, eight or nine years old. And I said to myself, when I grow up, my kids will never have to live the life that I was living. Now, when I say that, I didn't just mean by the alcoholism, I meant the poverty, the dysfunction, all of that. And so what I did is I structured my life around making sure that my kids didn't have to be exposed to that. So anytime that I ran out of the energy to do it for myself, I was able to use my unborn children to, to push and motivate me. And let me just finally say by that, I got a 12 year old and a 16 year old. See, I graduated to the nice home and the nice life, but my kids only know that second part of the life. So, you know, I think that's what pushed me and motivated me. Mm-hmm. You, I recently read a post that you shared on social media, and this is just kind of going on obviously with what we're saying. And you said that you have to realize there is a point for your pain. And Kristen and I um, say lots, like we'd rather have hard lessons than no lessons. So what would you say was your, you know, your toughest specific challenge as a kid and what caused you kind of the most pain that gave you that fuel to say, okay, I'm not going to have my family grow up this way. Well, you know, what it was is, uh, I don't even want to call it pain. It turned into sort of pain. I I was an elite athlete. What allowed me to escape that madness is uh, God gifted me with the ability. I played soccer, baseball, basketball, and football. I started at the age of eight and I played right until I graduated high school. And if you allow me to toot my own horn, I was phenomenal. And I was phenomenal in all four. So it's not equally, equally good in all four. And so the accolades I would get from the sports and my teammates and that family feeling allowed me not to get sucked into what was going on in my home. But the push was the fact that I wanted to be a professional athlete. And that was my focus. And so I had a path. And so, you know, I took the pain that was going on in my life um, and I was able to bring it into my sport world and, you know, like I played running back as, you know, uh, for football. And if you watch me play, people say, oh, he runs like a crazed man. They had no idea the thoughts that were going through my head when I was out there because football is a sport where you can almost try to kill somebody and you get paid for it. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I was able to take what I was going through and rather than internalizing it and allowing it and it becoming the catalyst failure, I used it as something to push me. And, and I have a thing that I talk about to my audiences and my kids is that you have to make your pain profitable. There's, we should never go through anything in life and not make that pain pay you back. If you went through it and it made you feel bad, I'm going to make sure that whatever it is, I'm going to get something from it in return. Mm, amazing. Yeah. I mean, we, cer- we certainly agree. Sometimes we need reminders of that because it's tough. But yeah, thank you so much for that. So interesting, like you said, you're so busy with all of these different sports and, and your family struggled financially. How did, how were you able to play so many sports? Did the school play a big role or tell us a little bit about that? Well, you know, um, if you're good, 
you know, everybody wants you on their team. And so what, what, I, what happened is each one of my teams, my coaches always, they became like fathers, you know? So um, I had a lot of coaches that didn't know my story at home. At least it's funny that I say that because I ran into a gentleman that um, so I, soccer was one of my one of the sports, and uh, for a summer, I would travel. I made this elite soccer team, and I would travel to to universities and play with the best soccer players in the nation. And I'm going to these camps, and later in my age, I realized I'm like, how the heck did I go to all those camps? I mean, I I realized how poor I was, but it was happening. Um, and I got a, a Facebook message from a guy and I was kind of weirded out at first, you know, and then he starts talking to me. And then I realized I remembered him and this guy stepped up and says, I just want to tell you for that summer you played soccer, I was the one that was sending you. So I was like, holy cow, like this is how I was going. And so throughout my life, I had people like that, that saw my ability of my teachers, especially. You know, and one thing they did that I don't like is I never had my feet held to the fire academically. And it mm -hmm. burnt me. It burnt me at the end. See, I didn't have to do schoolwork because they kind of knew what was going on in my home. They wanted me to get to the professional football field and they didn't want to be the ones to be in my way. So I never had to do my schoolwork. But what happened was, is when I got to my senior year in high school, before I got there, kids were able to go to college without high school diplomas. So you could actually fail out of high school and the university could still give you a scholarship. So I'm watching this all my life. So what if I don't like school, it's not going to make me go to class. I was like, hey, what the heck? I'm just going to slip through the cracks. And they passed a rule my senior year. And so I lost all my, my major scholarships and I ended up going to a small smaller school that didn't have the big football so I paid the price so they see that's some pain right there that I had to endure but um yeah it was those coaches and and, and those people those teachers that kind of took me under their wing so how does that change the way you parent like as far as your kids academically now well, listen, let me, I'm, uh, okay, I'm going to be honest. I'm a parent, so I'm just like, hmm, yeah, I yeah, yeah, yeah. changed the way I would parent. Yeah, sure. yeah. Well, no, it didn't, but I married the right person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? So my, my, my wife is pure academics. When you're talking about, you know, a perfect balance, you know what I'm saying? I'm talking about she is scholar, schoolwork. So, and I'm talking, I don't even touch it. Like it, it, in, in my house, they don't call me for homework. <laughs> we, we don't talk about, you know, anything. And, and it's cool. And, you know, it's like staying in your lane. You know, even right. when, my, when my, my son, you know, when he messes up in school, I got to hide my face because I'm laughing my butt off because I'm like, wow, man. You know, I can't yell you at him. You know what that's I, like. I, I, yeah, that's what right. I was doing. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, but yeah, in my house is the balance. And so... I was good in sports. Both of my kids are phenomenal athletes. So I pick up the ball with uh, getting them ready for their sports. And mommy makes sure, you know, my daughter's like a, a 4.0 student. My son's up, up higher Bs. And so, you know, they're consistent with their schoolwork and with their athleticism. You know, we don't have to worry about once they get ready to graduate, they'll be able to go off to one of them big schools, hopefully for free. You know what I'm saying? Well, right. Yeah. So, Michael, what was that like for you? Obviously, athletics got you through so much, and then they passed this rule, and you think, like, I, I got my ticket. It's punched. I'm ready to rock and roll. And then the rug is, I mean, figuratively pulled out. Literally pulled out, yeah. Oh, well, listen, it was, it was crazy. I mean, and, and the buildup. So you got to imagine, I was so good that, I mean, everywhere, I mean, articles, newspapers, and then even my senior year out of all the recruits, so all the seniors leaving college in the nation, I was number 22. Wow. So like, I mean, I had personal letters from like UCLA and Florida State, these big schools. And then in the beginning of the year before they passed a the rule, 
they when a school would come to visit, so like say uh say like UCLA came to visit, they'll announce it and then I would leave my class and everyone while I'm walking through the halls, they're cheering because everybody was like he's on his way. But you know, when that fell through, um I, I spiraled. It took a few months. I started smoking marijuana, I started drinking, you know what I'm saying? Um, and I started to kind of go into that, I, I don't care about life anymore. Um, and I think one morning, uh, I, I, I ended up hooking up with a guy, <laughs> he didn't drink, like, you know, we would experiment with beer. But uh, this guy gave me some gin. It's like nine o'clock in the morning, and I drank the gin. You can't drink gin. I mean, at that time of the morning, and it hurt my stomach so bad. Like you know, like and and it was funny. Like I drank it, and I, and then just that little voice was like, "Dude, what are you doing?" You know. And once I kind of heard that little voice, what I did is I um I'm a gym rat. I'm very much into my fitness. So even when I was, you know, doing the, the drugs and the drinking, I kept working out and I just continued to press forward. So I ended up going to a, we call them community colleges. They're like junior colleges. Um, and I found one with football and I continued to play the football. Um, and then leaving from that junior college, I mean, not to get into detail, but I, I got my grades up to a certain level but then I, I got into a confrontation with the coach, not because I'm a bad person, but I wouldn't do what he told me to, and he blackballed me. So imagine, I went to my junior college, I'm, I'm set to go to one of those big schools again, and this coach comes around and tells, you know, other coaches that I'm a disciplinary problem. But long story short, I ended up at a Division three. Division one is the top level. I ended up at a Division three school to play football, but um, it stung me for a very long time, for a very long time. Hmm. Yes, yeah, so you're, you're there and then all of a sudden you have these expectations and you're playing at something that's not meeting your expectations. So how does right. that change your identity and how does that change who you think you are? You know, um, it didn't change and, and it's, it's something that's part of me and it's part of my DNA. So I, I got at the eight, eight years old, my first sport, I got a um, most valuable player trophy. You guys know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. You get a, you know, when you're the best player in the oh, team, yeah. you get an extra trophy. So first sport, I had no idea when the trophy ceremony came because it was my first sport, but they gave it to me and they gave it to me and they told me that I got it because I was the best. And that sucker planted a seed. And I'll tell you guys, again, toot my own horn. Every team I played on, I got the MVP. Now, you ask me how I felt when I went to the Division III school. My image didn't change because my athletic ability didn't change. And so wherever I went, my purpose was to shine. So I went there and I, I shined there just like I would have shined at a Division I school so, you know, I think part of the push to be the best, of course, was the accolades, but at the same time, it was able to protect myself from sometimes may not re being able to reach where I was supposed to be. You know what I'm saying? So the accolades and the, you know, the showering of compliments, I mean, come on, we're all human. Of course we love that. So it allowed me to not feel like I wasn't in the place that I was supposed to be. And I ended up trying out for professional anyway. That's the part that it, it enables me to be able to live now without the regret is I got to go and, and be next to those guys that I thought I could play with. Um, and I ended up not, I ended up not getting um, a contract from a American football team. But at the time they had a football league in Europe and they would take four Americans per team. And then the rest of the team would be countrymen. So you go to Germany, France, and I got a contract offered to a team in England called the Nottingham Hoods. Um, but I, I didn't go, my mom was sick and they only paid you like a, a, a minimal salary. They got you a, a job at a pub and you got a seven month visa which is exciting, but I didn't want to be over, over there and my mom gets sick. And then I say, I went for the money and I missed out on my mother's life. So 
you know, um, I was able to shake that off and, and, and keep moving. It's funny that, like, I like how you have said um, not to toot my own horn and things like that. So we're big fans of Sarah Landry and the bird's papaya. And she recently just posted a picture where it said, it's okay to be your own hype. Well, hype woman, obviously you're not a woman, but it's okay to be your own hype person, you know? And I think that we, we get, so I know Kristen and I have had this conversation lately where people will say, okay, so you're podcasters. And we're like, no, 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 we're, we're, we're not podcasters. And it's, they're like, yeah, you are podcasters. And it's like, no, you know what? We can be confident in what we're doing. We can be proud of what we're doing as long as we do it, you know, with grace. And as long as we are good sports, when we do fall and when we do fail and somebody else, you know, kicks our butt. So I like that, you know, that is coming out, but I also just want our listeners to know. And I mean, that's something that we've kind of been talking about. We should be proud of our triumphs and we should be proud when we shake the dirt off. So I know Kristen's got the next question, but I just wanted to throw that in there. Okay. All right. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that too. It, it, um, so I, I kind of wanted to kind of shift gears and, and you founded in 2008, you founded uh, Youth Voices Center. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how um, it's important to you to kind of share that message with youth? Okay. So what happened was, is so you, 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 I do the football, I get to college, I declare my major and it's social work. Um, I realized growing up that I had a gift with kids. I was always a camp counselor and I always was, here we go, I'm gonna toot my horn again. I was always, <laughs> yeah, I was always the counselor that all the kids wanted to have, you know what I'm saying? And then I was also the counselor where they always gave the trouble kid to me and for some reason, he would come to my group and they'd like, I, what are you doing? I didn't know I was doing anything different, but he related to me. And I remembered this growing up. So when I became a social worker, my target was going to be youth. And so I started working in that field and again, making these wonderful relationships with kids. And I'm seeing that, yo, this is really what, you know, my gift is. And so I went to a nonprofit agency and they kept giving me curriculums to work with the youth and when they wouldn't work, I would get in trouble. And I would be like, listen, you bought it. I didn't pick it. You give it to me and you want me to facilitate it. And you want to be mad at me because the kids don't respond. So I said, you know what? I'm going to fix this. So what I did is I created my own program, got it together. And then I went to my, my agency that I worked for and I knew I couldn't take it out on my own. Like I, at that point, I, I kind of want to just go door to door and try to leave my job, but I wasn't stupid. So I said, you know what? I'm going to go to my job. I'm going to say, I have this thing. It's, it's good. Will you pay me to do it? And they said, all right, fine. And I started doing it and I'm doing my program. It's called Power of Peace. And we'll talk a little bit about that later, but it's called Power of Peace. And as I'm doing it, crazy money is coming into the agency. So I'm, I'm like excited and then my boss did, I don't know what possessed her to do this, but she showed me how much money was coming into to the agency. And when I saw how much money they were getting for my program and I saw how much I was getting paid as a salary, I'm like, wait a second, this does not equate, you know what I'm saying? So she takes me to this lunch to meet with a philanthropist and, um, when we go to the lunch, this woman gives money to the agency. And so uh, I got to set it up. Uh, at the lunch is her lawyer, the philanthropist, my boss, and the guy that runs getting money for the agency sitting at the table with me. So everybody's going on my side, you know, to pitch to the woman with the money. And so at the end, they kick it to me to sell my program to her. And I'm a spiritual, I'm, 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 I'm into, I have a strong relationship with God. And so I say that to you because underneath my table, I have a paper with accolades written on it. And the, a voice speaks to me and I crumble up the paper and I drop it on the floor. They don't see that, but I did it. And I said to this woman, I said, don't worry about your money because the person that I'm accountable to is God. Now you don't talk about God in business meeting, God. <laughs> when I said that, you should have saw the face of my boss, she turned red. The guy with her, he turns red. The lawyer of the philanthropist is cracking up. He's 
falling out of his chair and all I can see is my pink slip. I'm fired, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and once everything settled down, the, the philanthropist lawyer says, Michael, I just want you to know, the woman na was named Pat. Her name was, uh, she was a devoted Christian. When I said that I had a relationship with God, I spoke right into her spirit. And let me tell you something, guys, three or four weeks later, she would meet me for breakfast. She wanted me to come and meet her for breakfast. They were very casual and she would just talk to me. And eventually she found out that I was the one that made the program and she gave me the funds and I left my, my nonprofit and that's when I established Youth Voices Center. And I did it in 2008. And, um, you know, I've been rocking and rolling ever since. It just goes to show that you, when you're on your path and you're working towards your path and you are listening to your passion and your strengths, that it's kind of like the, it just unfolds for you. But so often I think we lose track and sight of our passion and we fall off the path and then we don't even see opportunities when they are in front of us. Yeah. So Michael, we talked a little bit before and off cast and I just want to get into this before we um, get into more of the actual programming piece. So kind of going back, how did racial discrimination and prejudice play into your life and your community? And we mentioned, you know, we're a small town um, Canada and um, our listeners maybe don't have a whole bunch of experience like, um, like you have had. You know, um, growing up, what was beautiful is uh, I was, I didn't go to school where I was supposed to. So this, 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 my dad, the guy that I talk about, drove a bus for a school in an affluent area that was predominantly white. So I went to a predominantly white school because he was a bus driver and I couldn't have a babysitter after school. So I would just get come out of school, get on his bus. And so I didn't have to go to a babysitter. Um, so I ended up going to a school where, I mean, my graduating class had maybe three blacks in it. Um, the kids didn't really treat me different. I didn't feel the racial tension. Um, what I did notice and I, and I realized once I got in older grades is is the separation so like because i grew up with those students that were white i was able to have a relationship with them but my friends weren't able to and so i i remember um and this is kind of silly but i'm gonna keep it real you know i remember one of my black friends um and i dated i dated women of all girls of all races but you know he came up to me knowing that I went out with a girl who was white and he says, hey, um, I want to ask you a question. He says, um, how do you talk to a, a white girl? And I looked at him like, dude, are you freaking nuts, bro? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm like, you know, so I looked at him and, and but you know, because I, I, I always had this, this good head on my shoulders, and I, I, I didn't even want to really walk him down the path, but I just shot him with, yo, she's human, bro. She's not white, black, or, or Chinese. You talk to her just like you would talk to one of the black girls, you know? And so, you know, racial growing up, I personally was able to escape it because being an athlete, you see what I'm saying? I was accepted by all, you know? I had a girl that I went out with that was white. This is real funny. Her father, now usually the dads are the protective ones, you know, like don't tell dad she's dating a black guy type of deal, you know. But in this family, because dad was a sports guy and he knew I was the, the king athlete of the town, her dad would drive her to meet me places so that the mom wouldn't know. So it was hilarious, you know oh, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it was, it was pretty quirky. But I'm going to tell you as an adult and a black man, psh, girl, it's crazy. It's freaking nuts. It's nuts. You know, my wife is Caucasian. She's white. So I say that because sometimes we never get into arguments, but I have to really like spell things out for her because living in this world as, as a black man, you are always constantly, you have to do things twice as good to get something that a white man could be average or below average and he can be able to walk into the same space. So with this nonprofit, I'm very careful. I'm very professional. I'm very polished. 
because I never want to have the, the problem of the fact that I get zapped because they say, see, 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 he's just like, you know, what, what, what people think. And I'll finish with this. Let me tell you something. And I teach this to my youth. Prejudice and stereotypes, the sickness about it is, is you get a group of, let's start with a group of black people. They have no white friends. So they talk to each other about white people and their definition of white people is only defined by what a group of black people say. I mean, come on, that's ludicrous. And then you walk out of your house and you see a white person and you judge them the way you just talked about with your black friends. It's crazy. No, it's not accurate because you don't have, you don't know. And so many people walk around and they judge other groups, not because they know the person, it's because of what's been told to them about the person. And so prejudice and stereotyping is, is built on, on falsity. It's, it's false. You know what I'm saying? It's false and, and it's a shame and, and it's, it's, it's terrible because that's, that's where a lot of that hate is rooted. Yeah, thank you for saying that, Michael. Go ahead, Jess. How often do you see, um, you know, that pain that comes from the prejudice and stereotypes and, and discrimination in the youth that you work with? You know, we, I mean, we sure hear it happens a lot and that it is, you know, still very toxic and is still a, a huge problem in, in areas of the States and in areas of the world. So how often is that coming up with your teenagers and with your youth? Well, what, with my program, okay, I want you guys to imagine you're a principal of a school. So what I do with my program is when I come to you, there's 25 to 30 kids I work with at a time. I tell you when I come, that out of those 30 kids that you give me, I wanted to represent everything that's in your building. So when they come to me, I want the white student, the black student, the Latino student, the uh, uh, struggling student, the honor roll student. And what I do is I put all 30 of them in one room and I run them through a two day interactive experience. And my, my purpose is for them to get self-reflection because I'm going to run them through activities so that they get some insight on who they are as an individual. But bigger than that, I want them to understand the other different people that are in the room. And so check this out. I'm going to tell you an activity I do. This thing blows their mind. I do an activity I call concentric circles. So I put them in a circle, an inner circle and an outer circle. So the inner circle is facing out towards the outer circle. And I give them five questions. So the first question is uh, a person or people you respect. The second question is qualities you look for in a friend. The third one is if you had the power to change something in the world, what would it be? The fourth one is a time that I, I, I felt most hurt by someone I trusted. And the last one is a time that I lost someone that I really cared about. They talk to a person, then I rotate them five times. So they talk to five different people for one minute about these subjects. So I do it, remember it's the diverse group. Then I open up the circle, we do everything in a circle. I open up the circle and I debrief it. And I have them talk about how it felt. Before I even go into that, I, I stop. Once they, they finish answering the questions and we get back in the circle, I ask them, I said, do you feel that? And what you feel in the room is the whole essence changes. Just five questions, just talking to five people, the energy in the room changes. And the reason why the energy in the room changes is because when they come in the room, they look around the circle and they just see faces. After they go through the five questions, they realize that each face is actually a person. So when you talk about prejudice, the thing that I see in these high schools are they walk around, just like we said with the stereotypes, not realizing that people are people. And so, you know, I, I see it. Um, my program is to address it. Um, and I get called into schools and, and, and it works. You know, it works. I had a woman that came, I did an adult workshop in the same community I was working in a school 
just to let the community know what I was doing. And when the lady went through the, the day program with me, she said, Michael, I went into that high school. She said, I felt the energy, but I didn't know where it was coming from. So what it was is these young people finally realized that, you know what, you know, Jimmy's black, he's from the hood, but he's okay. He's still Jimmy. Yeah, and I think um, what we've realized too, like with our experiences and talking with so many people is like people really want to be seen, valued, and heard. Right. And if you strip away all of the facade, that's what we really want to be, is seen, valued, and heard. And yeah. I think your program is awesome at addressing that. Yeah, that's yeah. A, yeah, that's amazing. Um, so Michael, tell us how important it is to men men to actually step up and mentor youth? Oh boy, let me tell you something. The black community alone, you know, I hate, I hate, you know, they're gonna kill me and probably throw tomatoes at me. But in the black community, there's, there's the fathers are missing. You know, the fathers are missing. So for black men, you know, it's, 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 it's really uh, important, but you know, it's a finesse, it's a finesse. Being a mother, we, 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 we all crave the nurturing of a mom. You know, it's easy. I watch my wife and my kids, and it's fluid. You know what I'm saying? You know, but with me, I have to, and luckily I'm the type of man that I am, I have to find opportunities to father. You know, I don't get the squeeze and hugs, and I want them like mommy does, but I don't get the, you know, oh, they just walk by and grab her up and squeeze it. They don't do that to me, even though they don't know I would love that, you know. But I find my opportunities to get that 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 loving. But, you know, it's 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 important for for the men because um, you know, I think I think that if a boy doesn't know that he has a king inside of him he will never grow to be that king. And so as a man, my job and responsibility is to let that little boy know, listen, man, you, you got a king in you, bro. You know what I'm saying? And so if you nurture it and we do this thing right, you know, when you get older, he's like, yeah, you know what? You know, Mike really instilled that in me and he know he can step into that. So, you know, it's, 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 if you lay out some framework, you give them a place to try to reach to, but for a guy that's just rambling around trying to figure it out on his own, that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. oh, I love that. I wish that um, our listeners could see Kristen right now just shaking her head like, yeah. Like, yep. yeah. yeah, I know. And I get the pleasure of, of seeing my friends, you know, be parents and Kristen and, and Craig, her husband, are absolutely raising her boys to be kings. And I think, you know, we, and we talk about this lots, we have all of these women's conferences and inspiring women's things. And we have professional development for women, women, women. And we often ask, like, where, where's all the conferences for men? And how come they're not going to professional development things? And why, you know, why is that not a thing? And we just love and commend and part of why we wanted to have you on the podcast is because you're one of those strong male figures that is standing up for, for all youth, but also standing up for, for male youth. And we love that. And both of us were just like, Oh my gosh, there that's tweetable. That's we're posting that. That's such a cool perspective. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Like Jesse and I are big advocates for speaking your truth. And that's right. really what you said about, you know, the only one that I'm accountable is to God that that was your truth. And you spoke that and it, you, you know, it paid off for you for sure. But we're really big advocates of speaking your truth and helping break stigmas around mental health and, and limiting beliefs. So why is it important to talk about your emotions and limiting beliefs and really model that to youth? You know, um, I, I live light. You know, and, and, and again, if you allow me to stand on my spirituality, I didn't find my, my, my faith until later in my life, but he was always there. And I live life light, which I'm going to explain to you. Um, but I live life light because my therapy is using what I went through to help other people. So when you say to be able to put it out there, you know, um, you can't help other people until you are able to address your own stuff first. You know what I'm saying? And so, you know, I'm powerful in what I do 
because I've never felt like a victim because it's, 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 it's up front and center. You know, I mean, I'm so, I'm so like transparent that, you know, my wife, when we go places, you know, I got bruises on my shin because she'll see somebody acting up at the table and she knows I'm about to jump on them. And, you know, I feel that kick under the, the table light and I look like, don't do it. And I'm not rude. I'm not one of those guys where I'm going to yell at you, <clears throat> but I will, uh, slowly but surely start chopping you down. And the next thing you know, you know, and there'll be simple questions and the answers will start to get really like, and people at the table will be like, oh, who's this idiot? You know, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's just being able to be transparent to me is power. And when you're transparent, then, you know, the teacher has to always remain the student. So if you are transparent, you don't put yourself on a pedestal so that somebody can come knock you off. You ain't gonna never knock me off a pedestal because I, I told you everything. So if you try to come with something crazy, I'd be like, didn't I, I told you that already. So you can't use that against me. So I think it's healthy to be transparent because then you don't have to hide. Mm -hmm, for sure. So again, I wanna share something that you said publicly and we're gonna get to your my whys here shortly too, but um, considering the times right now, um, you know, with isolation and COVID and I know this mantra is important to you and, and we have our own mantras that we try to repeat to ourselves or remind each other of sometimes, but the gist of it was something like surviving is not enough. Don't ask why me, ask, try me. Can you share a little bit more of your experience with that? Yeah. Yeah. Listen, let me tell you something. So I had a, I had a buddy of mine who went through all of that stuff as a child with me. Um, we all make it through. Um, and once he made it through, the victory of enduring what he endured as a child was where he, 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 he threw his flat. His progress and everything stopped there. He took his victory lap around breaking the cycle, but not taking it to another level. You see what I'm saying? You know, my brother said something to me that, you know, I had my brother working with me with the groups. And he said that um, in African-American -Amer African homes growing up, all they drill in your mind is to graduate high school. They never say college. And so they constantly tell their kids, you got to get your high school diploma. You got to get your high school diploma. And so once the, the kid gets his high school diploma, he thinks he's done. You know, he's successful, he's made it. Now I don't have to do anything else not knowing that an entry-level job with a high school diploma, you, you can't buy a box of cereal with it. You know what I'm saying? And so the poverty mentality, mentality gets put, passed on, you know? So that's what I mean. It's the fact that you can't just survive. I could have stopped once I, I, I realized I wasn't an alcoholic like my dad, but I didn't want to stop there. You know what I'm saying? You know, there's times where I'm sitting in my, my living room and I'm blown out of the water like, dude, you know, I think back to my living room when I was a kid. This, this, you know, these are homes I dreamt of, you know, but it's mine. Wow. So why, why do you, what are your whys? I mean, we talk lots about my why. Why do you get up? Why do you work so hard? Obviously living your passion makes it, you know, they say you never have to work a day in your life if you love what you do and you obviously do. But what gets you through the tough days? Does Michael have tough days? You know, um, wow. Uh, I have a strong, strong relationship with God. Like, like guys, I'm telling you, like, like I spend time. And so when I, I'm going to say this to you, you know, I don't have many rough days. You know, check this out. Um, you, you had the stroke, right, Kristen? Mm -hmm. All right, so check this out. Um, being the elite athlete, right? In college, I broke my right ankle. And so I graduate college. Seven years after I graduate, that ankle starts to get sore. So I don't like doctors. So when it started to get sore, it's not like I ran off to a doctor like you're supposed to. Right. I just made my workouts go around the broken ankle. 
And so years go by, I'm ignoring this little tenderness in my ankle, figuring it's from the ankle injury. Um, then one day I walk into work and the lady says to me, Michael, why are you limping? So I'm like, whoa, now I'm afraid. So I go to an orthopedic surgeon. They check it out, they put up the x-ray and they can't tell me why I'm limping. So I leave the office. Now we're talking about, this is like seven years this thing has been going on. I leave the office, the, the limp gets so bad that I lose um, my gait. I, I can't even lift my leg. I'm swinging it like I have cerebral palsy. And I'm like, dad, this something is wrong. So then I go to my friend who's a chiropractor. He gives me orthotic lifts. Of course, that's not gonna fix it, but I put them in my shoe and I keep going. Then one day I sit down to get dressed and I feel the same sensation in my left leg. And I'm like, holy cow, this has nothing to do with an ankle. And you know what? My wife sent me to a podiatrist. And so I go into the podiatrist, I walk into his office. And the first thing he says to me is it's not your ankle, it's your back. And I'm like, my back, what are you talking about? So this guy's examining me, right? And then I see a panic on his face. Like it, it scared me. I'm watching his doctor panic. He calls his nurse into the room. And she said, he says, uh, my friend, the neurologist across town, get him an appointment now. And I'm like, oh, oh, slow down. He, he said, now. He couldn't get me in that day. He got me in the following day. I walk into the neurologist's office. He says, again, it's your back. You know, this man did an examination on me. He sits me down and he's like, listen, you either got a cancerous cyst on your spine or you got cerebral palsy. And I'm like, what? And he tells it to the elite athlete. I had to wait a week before I got my MRI. I got my MRI. Fortunately, I didn't have either one, but I did have a cyst on my spinal cord. It was compressing my, vinyl, my spinal cord against my vertebrae. It stopped the spinal fluid from going from my brain to my legs. Guys, I was going paralyzed. And so what happened was, is it killed the, the nerves in my legs. And so now I, even though I'm a gym rat, I limp. I limp and I use a cane when I walk. And when I go on to far walks, I even have to use a motorized scooter. So I'm saying this to you. I, I went a long way to tell you a point though, is the fact that not once or ever do I complain to the point. My, my wife sat up in the bed one night while I'm hobbling to the bathroom and she was in tears. And she says, you never ever say why. I've never asked God, why me? Take it away. I just get up and I go. And so, you know, it's like, it's, 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 it's like, I, I can't explain it. And so when, when you say bad days, that relationship with him allows me to only see things from one perspective. You know, do I get uptight? Like if somebody cuts me off in traffic? Yeah, come on, I'm human. But as far as to sit around and worry, nah, Mike doesn't do that. Michael doesn't do that, yeah. Yeah, I really like that. Because honestly, we've had that, that conversation about um, being grateful and I mean, obviously we have, you know, off days and bad days and we, we do have chronic health issues and all of that kind of stuff. But, but when I was recovering, everyone's like, oh God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I actually felt guilty for my recovery because a lot of people had it so much worse. Yeah. And so I'm a, I'm a nurse by trade and I've seen a lot of people that had it so much worse. So I, I'm, I get where you're coming from and I get like, it could have been worse and I, I'm grateful for everything that comes after. So yeah, no, I thank you for saying that. Kristen, can you actually, and I'm going to hijack this for a second. Can you share a little bit about that, um, that recovers guilt kind of that you had, because you, many people don't know that you went back and you were a stroke coordinator in the hospital. And I know often you would, so you were supposed to work like a four hour day and you would be on hour 13 and mm -hmm. you're telling and talking to people, saying and sharing a prognosis that is not as good as what yours was. How did you get through that and share that knowing like, oh my gosh, like when you get in the car, you can get in the car and drive home. Yeah, I think, well, probably Michael could um, relate to that too. But like, I think I, 
I don't know why things happen and I don't know why I was bl- like, I mean, obviously I had a stroke, so I mean, I, I could feel bad and I could feel bad that I had a stroke and I could stay in the bed forever. But at the same time, I had such amount of, of guilt and such amount of, um, uh, yeah, I, I guess guilt for my recovery because I mean, it could have went so much worse and I've seen people that have had it so much worse and I don't know why I was so lucky and blessed for my recovery too. So I'm trying to make the best of it and I'm trying to make my pain worth something and, and help others. So I think that's where my pain is profitable is to help others. Obviously, both- wanna, I'm sorry. No, can go I, ahead. Can I, listen, let me tell you something. And, and, and we, we won't get too spiritual and scare people off. I don't know what your audience is about. You were able to endure what you did because do you see what we're doing right now? What you guys are able to do today, you had to go through what you went through for you to be able to do what you do in the present time. So that's why I don't have any regrets in my life. When I look back at all the things I went through, when you get old enough and you realize it, you realize that you had to go through everything in your life to be able to do, that was your purpose. The stroke, believe it or not, was part of your plan. Yeah, I agree. See what I'm saying? It was part of your plan, but it spun you out to this place. So your, your, your landing part was way before the stroke, but really that wasn't really the end. You are now in the flow of what was meant for you. So, you know, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it, you know what I'm saying? You know, I went on a blog right after mine and I was starting to kick it with people with my spinal cord injury and I'm in the room and they're talking and I'm watching everybody post. And then I realized that 99% of them were in wheelchairs. I ran out of that freaking room like it was crazy. I was like, no, you know, how can I talk to these people? I'm a I'm a, a bodybuilder still. So I'm not going to talk to you about how good a shape I'm in and you can't even walk. So yeah, I, I, I feel you. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to jump in there, Jesse. No, I totally, I, I love this conversation. I love this. And I love, I feel like we're on the same, same boat there. Yep. Yeah, like Kristen. And I mean, she's always, I mean, part of why we became friends was because I chased her down. I feel like a little bit because I was just like in awe of her attitude about things and something that she has shared, you know, often with me and, and publicly as well is that, the stroke made her better and the stroke her life has in essence. And I, I mean, like Kristen, you've shared too, that it's tough and you're still in recovery mode and aphasia still acts up and, and exhaustion still acts up and seizure sense and a heart surgery sense and all of those kinds of things. But you really have turned it into an opportunity to be better. And Michael, obviously you take the tough stuff and do the same. So for our listeners, and I guess I'm curious, Michael, what ended up happening with your system? Did they remove it quickly or how did, um, obviously something must've happened to get you back moving? So, so, um, what they did is, uh, first, uh, I went, I went, they, they found it and I'll never forget the consultation because, you know, again, being a gym rat, um, I go to the surgeon and the surgeon says, listen, um, I'm going to be able to take it out, out, but I can't reverse the damage. So he's telling me he's going to cut me open, take this cyst out, but I'm still going to be limping around. I said, heck no. And I remember him look, not at me. He looked at my wife and he says that he will be paralyzed by the end of the summer if I don't get this thing out of his body. And I still left there and I was like, nope, nope, nope. And my wife has a uh, friend who's a physical therapist and I trust her. I love her. I care about her. And when we called her, we had her on speakerphone. The first thing out of her mouth was when is he going to have surgery? And when she said that it convinced me. So, you know, um, you know, I'll never forget. I went in, uh, for the surgery and, um, first and foremost, he said that if I, if I wasn't an avid weightlifter, I would have been paralyzed already. So the wet weightlifting, was able to push off the paralysis. But, um, you know, I went in and he comes to my bed right before surgery and uh, he swipes the bottom of my right foot with a key. 
And I'm like, what the heck is he doing? I hadn't felt anything in the bottom of my feet for years, you know? So I was a little annoyed because he didn't tell me why he did it. And this is one of them really like stern doctors. You know, he's got a serious bedside manner. And so he walks away. I go into surgery. I come out and uh, I'm laying in my bed and he comes over to the bed. He pulls the keys out. Now, when he pulls the keys out, I'm like, he better not hit me with that key at the bottom of my foot. And sure enough, he swipes it. And guys, I laughed. And I laughed because it tickled me. And when it tickled me, he was, I mean, he, he couldn't hold it anymore. And he says, you're going to be all right. And what I did is I left that hospital and the, the discipline and the craziness of myself is I, I just, I, 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 I got into it. So, you know, I limp. I still have nerve damage, uh, neuropathy. I, I, you know, so I take pills for that. I'm, I live off of muscle, muscle relaxers. Um, but you guys have been on my, my social media pages. If you look at me, I mean, you couldn't tell, you know, and what about what the thing about my injury is that it's not muscular. So I can squat. I, I do the elliptical. I ride a spin bike. It's neurological. So, um, I didn't really lose the functioning, you know, it's just putting one foot in front of the other and not that muscle control. Yeah, you're like me. You're too stubborn not to recover well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah we can't get it in our heads. Right? Yeah. Yeah, no, thanks, Mike, for sharing that. Michael, for sharing that. I really, really appreciate that. And I, I like, like you said, you wouldn't be able to tell at all. But I like that you are sharing that. And I think it will open up a lot of other people's eyes. And with people that are going through neurological disorders or people that are going through neuropathy and, and things like that. Um, if you have, if listeners are having any questions about that, feel free to reach out to, to Michael and feel free to reach out to us as well. Yes. So Michael, kind of a final question that I know both of us have, and uh, we talk lots about identity defining moments. So we have these moments in life where everything changes. And, you know, we've had quite a few and they've been harsh identity defining moments. But what would you say are your three, putting you on the spot, what are your three most important identity defining moments? Okay, so the first one was when I lost all those scholarships. <clears throat> that was my first, I would think, defining moment. Um, the second one would be my spinal cord injury. <clears throat> and I think the, uh, the final one would be becoming a dad, mm -hmm. you know? And I say that because I didn't have a role model. So I remember being very nervous in the hospital <clears throat> when we had to bring my daughter home because I was like, what do I do? It's not like I can think about what my dad did with me. And so I was scared. I was terrified. And so, um, you know, I had a mother, <coughs> excuse me, who, whose love was so giant that it loved me through that craziness. And um, that's how I father my kids, you know. And that's how I love one of the teenagers that I meet in the world, you know what I'm saying? You know, when a teenager leaves me, they feel loved on, and I, and I, I would have to attribute that to my mom. With Mother's Day coming, haha. <laughs> wow, I love that. Um, Michael, you have recently wrote a book and you're doing workshops. Can you share a little bit about that? Yes, I wrote a book, there's two books. So there's a wow. book that I wrote called Be Encouraged. And what it is, is written devotional style, pick a page, read the page, and it inspires you for the day. And what I've done is just take my dirt, put it on paper, and it's to inspire people to get started for the day, um, to be able to look at things from the proper perspective. The second book my wife wrote is called God Was Holding My Hand. And so my wife wrote a book about my life story, which it talks about that spinal cord injury. Um, so that they're able to get that book as well, um, <clears throat> both on Amazon. And then I'm doing an online course called Shake the Dirt Experience. I told you the story about the donkey. 
part of my teaching with the youth is that I like to take people back in their stories because I feel like people go through life and they step on landmines and you don't blow up, but a damage occurs. You don't realize the damage occurs and you start to make decisions in your life consistent with the damage rather than fixing it. And so what I want to do is take you back through your life, see if you stepped on a few landmines, see if you started to project and make false um, plans because of the landmines and see if we can back you up and navigate to new place. So it's one hour, 11 weeks. Um, it's with 20 other participants. So you get to enjoy it on your own and you get to build community with the other participants as well. So we will um, link that up in our show show notes as well too for our listeners as well. And obviously um, it's available on your um, social media as well. Yep, social media. My, my, uh, my motivational speaking website is michaelarterbury.com. My youth, my, my um, nonprofit is youthvoicescenter.org. And the course is shakethedirtexperience.com. Perfect. Thank you so much, Michael. So one, if you could say one, you know, one lesson, one nugget, uh, what would be your message for the listeners today? So this is in the second page of my book. So if I'm, I'm giving you a treat, maybe to entice you to go buy it. But um, it goes like this. Short-term thinkers plant gardens. Long-term thinkers plant trees. Eternity-minded thinkers plant themselves in the souls of others. You know what I'm saying? And I say that because that's part of my goal when I go out in the world. Um, you young ladies are doing it as well each time you put on a podcast for your audience. And so we all have to live selfless, conscious lives and be eternal. Oh, thank you so much, Michael. So again, the information on how you can get your hands on that book, we will make sure it is in the show notes. And okay, lovely listeners, are you having any why me moments when you can try and say, try me instead? Uh, Lord knows Kristen and I have. And where can you shake off some dirt? And are there also some young men in your life that you can help show them the king that is inside them? So when have you experienced great pain and did you try and turn it into fuel? So there was a point to it, like Mike shared about today. And I know for Kristen and I, sometimes we need a couple days, weeks, depending on what it is, to take that pain and to do the conversion into fuel. But we work hard to surround ourselves and be intentional about the influences that keep us on that positive path. So today, as we close, we want to thank you again, the listener and the Lloydminster Region Health Foundation for sponsoring today. And of course, Michael, you gave us so much to think about. Thank you so much for joining us from Connecticut. Thanks to Zoom for making that possible. So thank you so much for joining us, Michael, and sharing so much with our listeners. And thanks for inspiring us. I know we learned a lot and we will be having a lot of intentional conversations after this. Thank you. Thank you for having me.